This podcast deals with sensitive subjects and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Crime Cabinet. of October 1998, Lynn Bryant's body was found in the gateway to a field on an unclassified road in Ruin High Lanes on the Roseland Peninsula in Cornwall. The single track road ran between Ruin High Lanes Methodist Chapel and Travile's Manor. She had sustained knife wounds to her neck and back. Lynn Bryant was 40 years old and lived in the tight-knit community of Ruin High Lanes near Truro in Cornwall. She had lived there all of her life in the house that she was born in. She was a petite woman with dark pixie-cut hair. She was a popular woman who knew lots of people in the village and was a homemaker and enjoyed family life. She had a cleaning job locally. She was a mother of two girls and a grandmother to a 10-month-old baby boy. On the 20th of October 1998, Lynn spent the morning cleaning a local home before briefly visiting her parents who lived nearby. At around 12.45, Lynn drove her grey Ford Sierra to Harris Garage, which is now known as Roseland Garage, but unfortunately found they were out of the fuel she needed. She then drove to Chinoweth Garage at Ruin High Lanes, not far from her home. She bought fuel, milk and some groceries. Witnesses report seeing a man with a full scruffy beard in a white car van entering the forecourt of the garage at the same time as Lynn. Locals had reported seeing a similar van in the area locally in the previous days, but none of the locals interviewed knew the identity of the man or recognised the van. Lynn returned home after shopping at the garage and had lunch with her 19-year-old daughter Erin, who lived at home with her. She chatted about Lynn's 41st birthday, which was coming up in the next week, and watched an episode of Emmerdale, which was on television between 1 and 1.30pm. Just after 1.30, Lynn set out on her regular walk with the family dog Jay, a brown and cream lurcher. She often walked the same circular route which began at Ruin Lane, which was directly opposite her house. She walked the dog every afternoon, no matter the weather. Several people who knew Lynn reported seeing her and Jay walking along the quiet lane towards Ruin High Lane's Methodist Church. This has now been converted into a private home. A motorist reported passing by between 1.45 and 2pm and saw Lynn talking to a clean-shaven man in his 30s at the junction of the road and the chapel. There was nothing suspicious about this man and this was the last known sighting of Lynn alive. At 2.30pm, Lynn was found in the gateway to a field which was very muddy. It had three gates leading to the field surrounding and was regularly used by the farmer to move his animals. The gateway is on the unclassified road that runs from the chapel down to Travile's Manor, a six-bedroom manor house nearby. A woman was driving up the lane from Travile's Manor and discovered Lynn lying in the gateway. She reversed her car back down the lane to a farmhouse to call for help. She then returned with a local farmer who immediately recognised that the body was Lynn Bryant's. Lynn had sustained several knife wounds to her neck and back and a fatal stab wound to her chest. Police say that it's clear from the evidence that she fought for her life in a prolonged attack. 
She had injuries to her face and her clothing was described as being disturbed. She was wearing a brown barber-style jacket, a blue jumper, jeans and walking boots. There had been no attempt to conceal her body. Police and ambulance were called at 2.34pm and the air ambulance arrived at the scene at 2.50, but Lynn died there at the scene. Police believe that this was a sexually motivated murder. In general, a homicide can be considered sexual if it includes sexual activity before, during or after a killing. For some of these perpetrators, the sexual enjoyment and erotic fulfilment depends on the extremeness of torture and mutilation that they can inflict upon their victims. Police have never revealed exactly how Lynn's clothes were disturbed. The weapon used to kill Lynn was a single-edged blade. It was around 10 to 14 centimetres, which is about 3 to 5 inches long, and police believe it to be a small kitchen knife, or possibly even a pen knife. The scene was intensively searched for months after the murder, but no murder weapon has ever been found. Here's Stuart Ellis, Senior Investigating Officer at Devon and Cornwall Police, describing the scene of Lynn's murder. Lynn was left lying in the gateway. Um, there was uh, blood coming from a wound to her neck. What we do know in relation to Lynn's injuries is that she was stabbed uh, several times in several locations by her attacker. She had knife wounds to her back, she had knife wounds to her neck, and she was stabbed uh, fatally in the chest. We know that she uh, must have uh, fought against her attacker. She had injuries to her, to her face, uh, and we know that her clothing was disturbed at the time that her body was found. When you look at the evidence of the injuries and the way that Lynn's body was found, I think it is a uh, fair conclusion that this was a sexually motivated murder. The place that Lynn was murdered is a particularly remote part of Cornwall. It was at the time, in 1998, and it, and it still is today, really. There's only one main road that goes from Tregony uh, down to St Moors, the A3078. Uh, the route that Lynn took uh, from uh, for her last walk was uh, off that main road into a really quiet area of the, the countryside. The location is not a, an area that you would expect somebody to, to, to stumble upon. It's more likely that somebody had a reason to be in that location, whether through work, whether through family connections, uh, or whether that's some other connection to the area. But it, you would not expect somebody to wander into that area um, unexpectedly. Run. Captain and Morgan is a weekly podcast hosted by the captain from fantastic true crime podcast True Crime Garage and his longtime friend Morgan. Catch up with them talking crime and pretty much anything that comes to mind. Find them wherever you download your podcasts. You can follow them on Twitter at Cap and Morgan, on Instagram at the Captain and Morgan, or on their website, CaptainandMorgan.com. Evidence at the scene was the presence of vivid blue fibres on Lynn's body. It's believed to have been a mix of cotton and polyester, possibly the type of fibres used to make polo shirts and sweatshirts. There are no traces of these fibres in Lynn's home, so these are believed to belong to her attacker. Lynn's clothes were mud-splattered, as the entrance into the field was extremely muddy. Between 2.45 and 3pm, another local farmer reported seeing a man walking across the field near to the scene a short time after the murder. 
He was wearing what was described as normal clothes and the farmer didn't recognise him, saying only that he was wearing normal clothes and shoes, which is very odd walking across a field. There are no footpaths in that field and it's not generally used for dog walkers or walkers. This man has never been identified. As we heard from Senior Investigating Officer Stuart Ellis, the location of the murder was very remote. There's only one main road that goes from Tregony to St Morgs. It's a very quiet area. The route Lynn took walking her dog is onto a really quiet area of the countryside, not an area you'd expect people to be. Police believe that it's very likely that this person had a reason to be there. It's not just an area that you would just stumble upon walking. Police believe that the murderer's clothes would also be mud splattered and that Lynn's blood would also be very apparent on them. On the 20th of October 1998, Operation Grenadine was launched. House-to-house inquiries were carried out with an extensive search of the scene. On the 21st of October 1998, a police press conference was held at Incident Headquarters in St Austell. On the 27th of October 1998, a police reconstruction took place in Ruin High Lanes, reenacting Lynn's last movements. On the 30th of October 1998, Lynn's two daughters, Lee, then 21, and Erin, then 19, issue a family statement and attend a press conference to ask for the public's help. On the 2nd of November 1998, police say that they were still looking for Lynn's tortoiseshell glasses that she was believed to be wearing at the time of her death. Detectives revealed that they had arrested three men to date and all have been eliminated from their inquiries. On the 12th of December 1998, Lynn's funeral was held in Penrith Crematorium in Truro. Over 300 people attended the service. In early 1999, police stopped and questioned hundreds of van drivers in Cornwall in a bid to find the scruffy van seen at the same time as Lynn on the forecourt of the Chinoweth garage at Ruin High Lanes. They also sent out letters to hundreds of Maestro van owners. At the time of her death, Lynn was believed to have been wearing tortoiseshell glasses. When officers arrived on scene, she wasn't wearing them and they were not found in or around the scene. Four months later, on the 2nd of February 1999, her glasses reappeared in the gateway where she was killed. They were found by the farmer who identified Lynn's body in the gateway with the lady who discovered her. They were sitting on top of the mud and can't have been there for a very long time. Police had searched the area with a fingertip search and were sure that there were no glasses at the time of the murder. Police do not know if a passerby put the glasses there or if they were returned to the scene by the murderer. No one has ever come forward with any information regarding the glasses. Operation Grenadine remains one of the largest and longest-running investigations by Devon and Cornwall Police. There were four senior investigating officers, Detective Superintendent Chris Borland, Detective Chief Superintendent Martin Orp, Detective Superintendent Michelle Slevin and retired Detective Inspector Stuart Ellis. In 2016, detectives carried out a forensic case review and found that there was partial DNA profile recovered from Lynn's body in 1998. During the original investigation, about 6,000 people had DNA taken, however the samples were destroyed because of a change in legislation in 2013, just three years before new technology allowed scientists to piece together partial DNA profiles that police believed belonged to Lynn's killer. Over 7,000 statements were taken in regards to this inquiry, 442 males were dealt with, 
3,144 house-to-house inquiry forms were completed with local people and all males aged 14 to 70 living within one mile radius of the murder in 1998 were traced to investigate their movements on or around the 20th of October. This is Lynn's daughter Lee speaking on the 20th anniversary of her mum's death. I was living with um, my husband at the time. Um, I was actually at home, it was evening, and I was actually just changing Keelan's nappy. We were about to go out. We were going to go and get fish and chips and take over to my mum's. Um, there was a knock at the door. I took quickly whisked Keelan upstairs because I was in the middle of changing his nappy and thought that might not be something they want to see. Um, and my husband came up to me and said, there's been an accident, it's your mum. And I instantly thought it was car, you know, she'd been knocked over by a car or something. Came down and there was a policeman and woman in my front room. They didn't really tell me what happened. They just said there'd been an incident and it was suspicious circumstances and that I needed to go over to my dad's because my dad wasn't home from work yet and they thought it'd be a good idea for me to be there when he got home. Dad got home from work. My sister was still living at home. Um, we were sat down all together. My nan as well was brought in and we were told what happened to her. And obviously that was pretty horrendous. Yeah. So it's the first time I've seen my dad cry ever. Um, uh, it was just numbness really. I think it was just, it just the house went silent and I remember nobody seemed to know what to say. I think it was everybody was letting it sink in. Very, yeah, very strange few days after that it was very odd and obviously having police around in the house all the time it was very surreal and almost it was the very beginning was almost like this is a joke she's going to walk in through the door you know what I mean it was it was just wasn't real um yeah it was pretty horrendous so and from then on really it's a bit of a a bit of a um a haze it was like living in a bubble it was very odd so yeah to, yeah to have that news was yeah took a long time to sink in she was very popular very friendly very sociable yeah had time for everybody it's a real family lady everything was family orientated her children were the most important thing and her husband and she was really looking forward to having grandchildren really looking forward to it She'd been collecting Disney videos ready for her grandchildren. Um, and she, she got to spend 10 months with Keelan before she died. But obviously, yeah, so she's, she missed out on a lot. She's got four grandchildren now, yeah. I've got three and my younger sister's got a daughter. So she's missed out on that. We were such, well, what I class as a really normal family, nothing happened. My parents were still together, there was no divorces in the family, nothing unusual happened. So this was just, yeah, it was devastating. It's difficult in kind of dealing with the circumstances at the same time as the loss, and it's almost, you, I don't think I dealt with the actual loss until quite a way after, because you're kind of caught up in all this, the media, the police, the investigation, and it's also alien to you. You're caught up so much in that that you don't actually grieve properly until quite a while after, when everything's when everything died down, all the police are gone. That's when you really it hits you that they're not coming back. It is as important. Yeah, 20 years. Nothing's nothing's changed for me in the way I feel about it.
it's 20 years on, which obviously is a negative in the fact that nobody's been caught. But I don't, yeah, it's still, it's still not fresh, but I still struggle with it. It's a very fast 20 years, yeah, definitely. It's, sometimes it's more raw than others. I mean, it's, yeah, I try not to think about the negative stuff. I try and just remember the positive stuff about her because that's, I think, the best way to move forward. But obviously, you know, I've got these memories there, so. But obviously I want somebody caught and, you know, being, have to pay for what they've done. But at the same time, is having to see somebody who's done that and bring it all back. It's, it's going to be tough, but it's, I think, something the whole family need. It's not a nice thought, thinking about what she went through in her last sort of few minutes or moments of life. It's, that's something I try not to, to dwell on, because that's hard. Another hard milestone was when I, I've now... I'm now older than she was when she died, and I did find that birthday quite hard. I think it made me realise just how young she was. I mean, obviously I knew she was young, but when you get to that age yourself, you realise just how young it was. Um, yeah, that was difficult. I did find that really hard. I didn't think I was going to, but it did affect me. I did think about her a lot for different reasons, you know, either oh, she's missed that or... You know, I remember, you know, we'll talk about her, I remember when she used to do this and that. Um, but yeah, I, often if I have sort of real quiet times, I do think back and I, it, you know, I do get upset with the fact that I've had so many years without her and all the things she missed out on. And it's, you know, she was just such, she was such a lovely lady and it's just not fair. There was a lot of anger towards them. It's difficult to have anger towards somebody you don't, you know, you have no idea who it is, obviously. I have to say the anger, the anger has lessened, I guess, but I do, I still want them to be caught. I don't want them to go through the rest of their lives without being, you know, tough, well, having to pay for what they've done to me and my whole family and how they've affected our lives. First of all, not understanding why they would do it. It's not, I, I can't come up in my head with any reason why somebody would do that, other than maybe they're sick, you know, they're not well. But also that that person's probably carrying on with their life as normal and has been ever since. You're going to work, married, maybe kids. And it's, I don't know if it, I don't know. It's really remote. There's not many people go down there. And I think that's, What's difficult as well is the fact that she was on her own when it happened and, I, you know, for a while afterwards, that's difficult to deal with if she was just left there. I would never have thought that would happen, you know, somewhere like that down here. It's so remote and you do feel safe down there. But it makes me think he, the person probably knew the area, I'm imagining. That's what I think, you know, I think they must know the area too. It's not somewhere you just randomly come across. I would just urge anybody that's got anything, no matter how insignificant it seems, or if you think, well, it's been too long, there's no point now, just come forward with it. Um, you know, it could help. If it's not a name, just uh, something, anything at all could really help with the investigation.
Um, there isn't anything too insignificant or, you know, just, you know, come forward and give them a call. If, you, you know, if somebody's had suspicions near, back 20 years ago but thought, you know, I can't say anything at the moment because I know this person, I'm living with this person, or I've got my suspicions but I've got no real evidence so I can't go, just, just give a name in. You know, that's all you need to do and the police can do the rest. They don't need any more than a name. Um, that's really important, really important. Police are still seeking information on the three unidentified men in this case. The first man, seen driving the scruffy van that was on the forecourt of the Chinoweth garage at Ruin High Lanes. The clean-shaven man, possibly in his 30s, seen talking to Lynn opposite the chapel at the junction at around 1.45 to 2pm. And the man seen by the farmer in the field close to the scene. Were the man outside the chapel talking to Lynn and the man in the field the same man? Police are hoping that with DNA techniques advancing all the time, they'll be able to use the DNA found to lead them to Lynn's killer. They're appealing for people who may have any information, however small, to come forward. They're hoping that as allegiances change over time, someone must know something and be more than willing to come forward now. Here's Senior Investigating Officer Stuart Ellis. Back in 1998, the uh, National DNA Database was really in its infancy. It hadn't been used for very long in the criminal justice system. However, as we've progressed through the years, we have um, um, looked at exhibits again and uh, seen whether we can use new techniques to try and move, move a case forward. And that's exactly what we've done with the, the murder of Lynn Bryan. So in doing that, we sat down closely with uh, a forensic scientist and the investigation team and uh, we began to resubmit key exhibits that have been uh, found in this case. We began to find uh, common uh, elements of DNA. So the work that we've uh, undertaken now gives us the opportunity to look at that partial DNA profile. We believe that partial DNA profile has been left by Lynn Tataka and we can use that to try and identify him. The murder of Lynn Bryant has commonly been linked to two other victims. The first victim, 66-year-old Helen Fleet, was found stabbed and beaten to death on March 28, 1987. She was attacked in the secluded Walbury Woods in Western Supermare while she was walking her dogs. She was stabbed ten times, battered around the head and strangled to death. Despite one of the largest investigations in the seaside town's history, no real motive for the horrific attack has ever been established and it's thought that Mrs Fleet just happened to be in the woods at the wrong time. 20 minutes later, Sylvia Lewis from War, who was walking her dog, overheard barking and discovered Mrs Fleet lying motionless. Mrs Lewis, who was friends with Mrs Fleet, ran to the nearest house on Walbury Hill Road for help. It was then that David Davies and his wife Hazel went into the woods and found Mrs Fleet dead with her beloved West Highland Terrier Bilbo and brown mongrel Cindy nearby. A huge murder hunt was launched by police and more than 120 officers were working on the case at the time. Some 500 statements were taken, but no one was ever caught for the Daylight Savage attack. Retired police officer Chris Clark said that he believed Mrs Fleet could have been the first victim of a serial killer. He told National Papers that her murder had a stark resemblance to the murders of Kate Bushell and Lynn Bryant. Kate Bushell, 14, was killed on November 15, 1997, while exercising a neighbour's Jack Russell. Her father discovered his teenage daughter with her throat cut in a field just 700 yards from the family's home in Exwick and Exeter. 
Residents said that they saw a blood-soaked man running from the area minutes before the horrifying discovery, but he has never been found. None of the women were robbed or sexually assaulted and their dogs were unharmed, leading Mr Clark to believe that these cases are linked. Devon and Cornwall Police have never officially connected the events, but the similarities also include sightings of a van. Vivid orange fibres, which were alien to Kate and her family's home, were found on Kate's body. The death of the St Thomas High School pupil is one of the largest and longest-running unsolved murder inquiries carried out by the force. Despite many high-profile media and public appeals, her killer has never been found. We'll be looking at the death of Kate Bushell in more detail in the next Cold Case episode. If you have any information at all and would like to pass on some information anonymously, please contact Devon and Cornwall Police on 0800 555 111 or via Crime Stoppers. You can head on over to our social media pages and website to see crime scene photos from Lynn's case. And as always, I'm interested to hear what you think about this case. Are these murders linked? Who are the men that were seen at the scenes but not identified? And you can contact me on Twitter, Facebook or via email at research at thecrimecabinet.co.uk. Our next episode is an author episode and it's an interview with Andrew Tardiff, author of the book Mine. As always, thank you for joining me. Stay safe, stay well and take care.